thank you that there on that rung in the ladder we have the most rock solid basis foundation for our identity that we can cling to through the trying circumstances of life in Jesus name amen side so to speak of our modern political divide you find yourself on the vitriol of these past few years has given many of us just a little bit of anxiety regarding charged topics that could be considered political. I've literally felt my heart rate elevate as some conversations have begun. I've been so stressed about where they might end up leading. So because a conversation like this one can be so anxiety-inducing, I think it's worth a minute of our time at the outset to review our church's approach to so-called political matters. Uh, it was 2018, and we put out an explainer of our approach. Uh, looks like this on our website. I'm pretty sure our analytics have told us that this is the most viewed page in the history of our church website. If you Google politics, North Suburban Church, this will be the first result. You'll see there a few pillars of where we're coming from here at North Sub. First, if Jesus is Lord, he's Lord over every aspect of our lives, including our political engagement. Nothing's off limits from his rule. Second, the Bible has things to say about good government and our participation in it. It doesn't say everything there is to be said by any means about government, but it does have some things to say. Third, if the church doesn't disciple people on these issues, cable news and social media will be happy to do so. And uh, we kind of feel like it would be a dereliction of duty to hand that responsibility over to them. Four, for a church to stay out of politics can itself be a political statement. So we've used the examples of the church in 1860 Alabama who says we're not talking about slavery because that's political. Or the church in 1933 Germany who says we're not talking about the Nazi party because that's political, right? Those are political statements, even as they are claiming to be apolitical. Number five, there's a difference between being political, though, and being partisan. That's a key distinction because here at North Suburban Church, we are not a partisan church. We can't help but be a political church. The political touches everything these days, but we will not and are not a partisan church. And finally, political topics, we believe, give us an opportunity to model something different to a watching world. We believe we can be refreshing as Christians in a world in which these conversations uh, go in so many terrible directions. So in summary, we believe here at North Sub that it's neither desirable nor possible for a church to truly be apolitical. The church isn't supposed to be apolitical, and we couldn't be if we tried. Jesus' rule is too all-encompassing for it not to touch our politics. And besides, there's no topic today that's not considered by somebody to be political. We've got a responsibility not to shy away. What we've consistently found, though, as a congregation, is that the Bible tends to challenge our natural political allegiances. God's word won't quite let us feel totally comfortable in either major American party in political life right now. God's Spirit just won't allow us to unquestioningly affirm everything that was said last night on either Fox News or on CNN. So it's not, it's not that we're some kind of middle-of-the-road centrist church. That's not it. That's not what we're talking about. It's that our congregants and our church leadership even, we fall in all different sorts of places on the political spectrum. Some of us with high conviction. But we are Jesus people first. So when his word happens to affirm a certain policy or preference held by those on our side, we love that. But when his word happens to challenge a certain policy or preference held by those on our side, then we break with our side 
because our highest loyalty is to Jesus Christ. Amen? That commitment makes genuine followers of Christ uh, a little strange in this world. People on both sides have a hard time putting us in a box. They're frustrated that we sometimes break ranks with the party that they expect us to support. But that strangeness is okay, we think. God's word told us we'd be exiles in this world. In this world. So with that groundwork established, let's pray and open up the word. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Some kids grow up believing that they are worthless. Maybe you've seen the kid getting dragged through the grocery store or the shopping mall. The parent is chewing them out, calling them names, speaking all sorts of horribly devaluing statements over them. What kind of chance does that kid have of believing that they have dignity, worth, value, purpose? What chance does that kid have of seeing herself as anything but a failure? On the flip side of the self-perception coin, other kids grow up believing that they have tremendous status, maybe even superhuman status. Maybe you've seen YouTube videos of kids who've come to believe that they have superpowers. I've enjoyed uh, watching some of these. There's this kid who starts believing he can make Costco's sliding door open and close on command. The kid who believes that he can start his dad's car using the force. Uh, or my favorite one is uh, this young man. Maybe you saw him. Uh, he comes to believe he's turning on and off the fireplace with his words. Abracadabra, and it goes on and on. The kid who believes he has godlike powers isn't quite what he thinks he is. The kid whose parents tell him he's worthless is much more than he thinks he is. But there's a truth about who each of those kids is, whether they rightly perceive who they are or not. And that's true for all of us humans, young and old. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1? There's Bibles in the seat in front of you if you don't have one. Part of what the Bible records uh, is the story of human beings, going back to the very beginning. And the story the Bible tells about humanity is one of near constant double temptation to simultaneously think of ourselves as either more than what we actually are or less than what we actually are. That story of humanity starts here in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. For five days, God has been making everything out of nothing. Let there be, let there be, let there be. Then in verse 26, we pick up the story midway through the sixth day. As I read these two verses, uh, reflect with me on who we really are according to God. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. Because of how foundational these two verses are, we could preach the next 52 Sundays on just this and still not exhaust all the connections to other scriptures 
uh, or implications for our lives. For today, we're going to ask three questions. One, what does it mean that we're made in God's image? Two, how does our enemy attack God's image in us? And three, how do we repel the enemy's attacks? What does it mean we're made in God's image? How does our enemy attack God's image in us? And how do we repel the enemy's attacks? First, what does it mean that we're made in God's image? We are helped in answering this first question by the fact that we can find this phrasing elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. An image. Well, that's the word the Hebrew Bible often uses for what we would call an idol. An image is a resemblance or a representative figure. Often a statue that represents a person or a god. So, for example, we see King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3 setting up this massive gold image. Right? Same word. It's an image of himself. And he commands the people of his empire to worship the image. The implication clearly being that by worshiping his representative image, they will be worshiping him. To be made in God's image, then, involves its own representative function. Like, we're meant to put the invisible God on display and represent him here on the earth. And we see hints of that already in verse 26, don't we? In the rulership given to humanity over the animals, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. It's like God is saying that even though I'm the ultimate ruler, I'm going to rule over the creation, including the other animals, through you, humans. You'll be my representative rulers. My vice regents here on this planet. But that's only one dimension of the image. Uh, there's a more personal facet to it too. When we read on just a few chapters and see the same language pop up in Genesis 5:3. Here's what it says there. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Notice, same author. As our text, same book, just a few chapters later, same image and likeness words. Speaking not this time of a statue, but of a son. Which isn't just about representation. Seth is like Adam. He carries Adam's traits. Are they identical in every way? No. But the, te the text suggests a resemblance. So in summary, while we want to be careful, really careful, about definitively declaring this is what it means to be in the image of God and summarize it in one quality. Theologians over the centuries have pointed out the resemblance, the representation, and the relationship aspects of us image bearers. We resemble God in certain ways. Again, we're not told exactly which resemblances constitute the image, but we're able to think rationally, to reflect, to empathize, to love, to emote, to respond to God, etc. And that resemblance allows us to represent God in certain ways, to rule over the animals, for example, in verse 26, and to watch over and cultivate his creation in Genesis chapter 2. But unlike the origin stories of other ancient Near Eastern nations all around Israel, there seems to be a relational component to this image bearing as well. That's different from the nations around Israel. They taught and believed that the gods had created humans merely to do stuff for them. Meanwhile, in Israel's scriptures, they meet a god who wants a relationship with humanity and who creates humans with capacity for relationship with him and who goes to great lengths to restore and maintain that relationship. So, pretty cool. A uh, lofty status that we're given as image bearers of God. But you know how sometimes you need to throw a dark background behind an image to see it a little more clearly? 
I think uh, maybe it's worth our doing the same here. If, if this is what image bearers are, those who resemble God, represent God, and have a relationship with God and one another, it's worth asking a question, what are we not then? And at the most basic level, our passage today answers that question in two fundamental ways. One, we're not just animals. And two, we're not God. So first, we're not just animals. God commanded us to rule over the animals uh, uh, before he made us on the sixth day, thereby placing us over them. And there's a few features of the creation of humans that are unique in Genesis 1, among all the other things he creates. When God created everything else, remember he said, let there be. But when he comes to create us, he says, let us make. He speaks to himself for the first time. The other creations were brought forth. The earth brings forth vegetation. The waters bring forth fish. But there's no substance that brings forth humans. God creates humans. And creates how? The animals, they were all created after their kind. If you just scan back to verse 25. Following some kind of pattern. What about we humans? We are not created after our kind, but after the likeness of God himself in his image. Now, you say, it's obvious, right, that we're not animals. Everybody knows we're not just animals, and it's true. My two-year-old knows that humans are different from animals. We're not just animals, and I never actually had to tell him that. He just looked around and picked it up. But some of the most obvious things the things we knew intuitively back when we were two, can become easy to forget, right? Like some of the most brilliant people in the world today think we're just animals. Do you know that? They say that to claim we humans have dignity or rights that sentient animals don't completely share, that's just plain speciesism. That's a real word. You can look it up. It's, it's every bit as ugly, they say, as racism or sexism. And since humans are just another animal species, the most honest of them will actually take that view as far as it logically goes, and they'll say, human rights, they're pretty much just an arbitrary notion with no foundation. If we're just animals whose existence traces back to protoplasm randomly heating to a certain temperature, if there's no God who sets us in a different moral category from the rest of the animals, then that might make you and I feel good to declare that humans have rights, but that assertion of human rights has no basis, no real basis in the essence of things. You and I, we're just organisms trying to pass on our DNA like the rest in a game of survival of the fittest. And we've seen in places like China and Cambodia in the last century, what happens when such a worldview becomes official policy? Ethnic cleansing, genocide of millions. And who's there to speak up and say it's wrong? Wrong on what basis? Right? If there's no God who made us different from the animals, genocide then is just the universe weeding out bad genes. But the Bible says, no, no, no. We are different from the rest of the animals, and we are because God said we are. We have a dignity, a value, a worth, a relationship with God as image bearers that the rest of creation doesn't share. So we're not animals, but on the flip side, we're not God. That's another statement that might seem too obvious to be worth mentioning, but it's not an overstatement, I don't think, to say that everything goes wrong in everything that goes wrong in human history from Genesis 3 onward goes wrong because we humans aren't content to be image bearers of God. We want to be God. 
look at verse 26 again. It starts with God being differentiated from us. Then God said, let us make man in our image. There's somebody over us here, distinct from us, making decisions about whether we are going to exist. And if we're going to exist, what our form and function will be. We're not him. We humans, then, we occupy a very specific position in the scheme of beings. Think of it like rungs on a ladder, maybe. I'll show this image a lot today. This is my best ladder attempt. We're certainly lower than God, right? But we have a dignity that the animals don't have. And if the basis of our dignity is our status as image bearers of God, that dignity is held equally by all image bearers of God, regardless of race, gender, class, ability, sexual preference, creed, any other category. It's like C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. That Christian perspective is quite different from the position of, for example, world-famous atheistic Princeton philosopher Peter Singer. Since Peter Singer rejects old-fashioned notions like humans bearing the image of God, he says... And he's gained a large following saying, we aren't more worthy of rights than animals are. Not inherently. He says, dignity and rights belong to those beings with higher capacity, like self-awareness, ability to suffer. So here's what he concludes in his uh, practical ethics. A weak old baby is not a rational and self-conscious being. And there are many non-human animals whose rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, capacity, and so on exceed that of a human baby a week or a month old. The life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. You have to respect his honesty in taking his foundations to their logical conclusions. If humanity hasn't been endowed with any special dignity by a creator, why should a helpless, weak old human be protected any more than an adult pig should be? And as such, what's the worth of a human born with a disability? A child born with Down syndrome, for example. Well, Singer has an answer to that. He says parents should be able to euthanize their newborn children, even for some time after birth, if they find those children are born with significant disabilities. You probably don't have to be a Christian to recoil at that proposal. But friend, if your worldview doesn't provide a clear and unambiguous answer to the question, on what basis do humans have rights? Then here's the question I think you need to ask yourself this morning. Why am I repulsed by the idea of killing infants with disabilities? Why do I believe that humans have rights? Is it possible that there's a creator who has haunted you with the imprint of your dignity as a bearer of his image? Okay, so that's what it means that we are made in God's image. Now, how does our enemy attack God's image in this? This will be much less, much more brief. I say enemy because the Bible teaches that we have an enemy. You may be familiar with that. He's called the devil or Satan, which means the adversary. He shows up in the third chapter of the Bible, 
And from his first appearance, he's on a mission to destroy the image of God in us. How? Well, we've been assigned this status, right? Right here, this rung on the ladder. So if he can get us to bump ourselves up a rung on the ladder to try to get this spot, or if he can get us to climb down a rung on the ladder to act as though we're in this spot, he wins. He's equally happy either way. He'll try to either convince us that we're gods. He'll say, no, no, don't sell yourself short. You're not just an image bearer. You can be the one on the throne. Or, if that doesn't work, he'll try to convince us that we're basically just animals. Who are you kidding? You're not an image bearer. You're expendable. But here's why he's fine with either. The two errors he pushes us into are so far apart that they touch. In other words, he often gets us with both errors in one shot. We don't need to go any further than Genesis 3 to demonstrate this. God, in Genesis 3, has told Adam and Eve that they can't eat from the fruit from one tree. The adversary comes along in the form of a serpent. And he says, did God really say that you can't eat from any of these trees? Look for yourself. Does this look like something that will kill you? Think about what he's doing there. On one hand, he's inviting Eve to put herself up a notch in the position of the creator, in the place of God to be discontent with her creaturely position and to go after a new position on God's throne. Now she'll be the one, if she listens, who decides what's good and what's not. Thank you very much. But what's actually happening, what's actually happening as she reaches up for that next rung on the ladder? She and Adam are submitting to one of the animals that they're supposed to rule over. So in the very act that they thought would elevate their status beyond mere humanity, they actually degrade their humanity below what it had ever been before. We commit the same sin, and we experience the same results. Putting ourselves in the place of God often results not in elevating ourselves like we hope it will, but rather in degrading ourselves. Just one example. We say... God's restrictions on sexuality are so stifling. It's time we liberate ourselves and take control of our own sexuality. So what do we do? We reach for the next rung on the ladder, the one where we would get to decide what's good and what's not in the area of sexuality. But then, after making our liberated choices, where are we so often left? I feel empty. I feel gross. I feel... I thought I'd experience a greater sense of value and worth, but I actually was treated like I had no dignity at all, like I was a piece of meat. So in summary, we've got an enemy trying to convince us to reach above our station, knowing that that very act of reaching is what will knock us down below our station. Finally, how do we repel the enemy's attacks? How do we repel those attacks? I'm going to limit myself to one answer to this question today. And it's our big idea for the day. Here it is. Let's remind ourselves regularly that we are not our own but belong to another. Let's remind ourselves regularly that we are not our own but belong to another. That's New City Catechism, question number one. We recited it earlier in this service. Remember, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, 
Jesus Christ. In other words, my spot on the ladder is not something for me to look within myself to figure out, to figure out which rung I'm on, right? Much less something for me to grasp or have to attain. My spot on the ladder has been assigned and unchangeably fixed by the one who made me and set me there. Trying to break free of that position will result in my harm. Embracing that position will lead to my flourishing. So that's helpful, actually, when the enemy says that I'm nothing. When he whispers that lie in my ear because I can shout back. I reject that lie because the God of the universe has told me that despite my weakness, despite my failure, despite my sin, that I belong to him and that I am more valuable to him than to anything else in creation is. And when the enemy tries the reverse tactic, he puffs me up, tells me, you deserve to be calling the shots in your own life. I can shout back just as loudly. I reject that lie too because the God of the universe has created me in such a way that I find fullness of flourishing when I'm imaging him and bringing glory to him by living in line with my creaturely position under his loving rule. So we see then that the truth that we're not our own but belong to another is simultaneously the answer to both of the lies of the devil. Let's be honest though, to declare I am not my own in the year 2022 requires an incredible amount of willingness to swim upstream. It's not much of an exaggeration to say that most systems and structures in our society are now geared toward ingraining in us that we are our own. It's maybe easiest to see in education and entertainment. When you read educational theory from a century ago, and by the way, I'm not saying this is all good, I'm just reporting the facts. The point of school was to provide intellectual, social, and moral training to help students be functioning members of society. That meant that when a student went to school, he would learn to rein in some of his self-expression because he was taught that some forms of self-expression aren't conducive to a well-functioning society. Today, the point of school is moving towards something at the opposite end of the spectrum, especially at higher levels of education, but even in elementary settings. Teachers are being trained that they're there to protect you, students, from society's restrictions on your self-expression so that you can be unhindered in discovering the authentic you inside of you. Because after all, you are your own. We see it in entertainment too, obviously. You've heard me point out that the only hero narrative left seems to be that of the hero who throws off everything that everyone around her says she should be to embrace what she believes herself to be deep inside. In other words, I am my own. And so we find ourselves living in a world in which the only heresy that seems to be left is the heresy of failing to affirm someone's belief that they are their own. In some situations, the authorities are even being called upon to put legal force behind the demand to affirm everyone's belief that they are their own. And young people here, you're on the front lines of this. We recognize that this is your lived experience, challenge every day. And so we here at North Sub, just so you know, are praying for you, and we are dreaming that this church would unleash a small army of rebels 
who boldly say the most controversial thing, maybe, that can be said in 2022, I am not my own. I know some of you think we've already spent enough time together this morning, but I want to conclude by talking concretely, briefly, about three battlegrounds of human identity in the year 2022. The following, these are three specific variations on the core lies of the enemy that we've already seen today. Three domains, you could say, in which the enemy tries to get us to see ourselves as something other than creatures with great dignity made in God's image. First domain, sex difference. Sex difference. How did God create us? Male and female. Take a look. Genesis 1. He created them male and female. Sex difference is so essential to human creation that it's here. First time humanity is mentioned. Jesus himself, Matthew 19, affirms this passage as foundational in his own understanding of sex difference. God could have theoretically created generic humans. Instead, he creates male, male humans and female humans. And of course, male humans and female humans share a great deal in terms of essence, ability, function. We share completely in our worth, our value, our status, our inheritance before God. But there's difference between male and female too. I don't know how to definitively parse out that difference. Uh, we're going to actually try on January 30th on 9 at 9.15 in the gym in our life course that day. But it's not all that cut and dry actually biblically. The Bible, for example, doesn't define the difference between the sexes in terms of how our brains fire differently or in terms of physical strength differences or uh, differences in ability to multitask or in terms of whether we gravitate toward things or people, though there are real and significant differences between the average males and average females in all those areas. What the Bible does affirm clearly and repeatedly is that God has created male humans and female humans. The crucial question today, perhaps, that some here are wrestling with is this. Who decides my gender expression? Who decides whether I live, in other words, as a male or a female? That can be a, a question riddled with so much angst for so many. If I'm a god, then I choose for myself. If I'm at this place on the rung of the ladder, then I choose my gender expression. If I'm a creature on one of these rungs down here, then that gender is actually assigned to me by my creator who creates male and female humans. And males and females of other animals. And ironically, but not surprisingly, based on what we saw earlier in this sermon, it turns out that when we try to be gods, so to speak, in this area of our lives, when we try to elevate ourselves to this top rung of the ladder, we can end up acting subhumanly toward each other. Here's what I mean. A child in her mid-teens begins to sense a feeling of not being at home in her body. Increasingly common experience for many of our young people. Like maybe she'd feel more home in a male body because maybe her true identity is male, she thinks. So her parents, medical professionals, legitimately concerned for her mental health and wanting to help her throw off the shackles of this antiquated notion of gender being assigned by some far-off deity, they encourage her to climb up a rung and make the decision for herself whether she'll live as male or female. She chooses male, and so they quickly greenlight her journey into hormone therapies and surgeries starting at 16. 
But then at 23, she's done a lot more internal processing. And she's concluded that many of her feelings of displacement in her teens were actually, in hindsight, somewhere within the range of normal teenage angst. And now she feels she's made a horrible mistake by transitioning. She, she fully believes herself to be female and wants to live as a female. But now, because of what she's been through, she'll never be able to experience much of normal female function, including childbearing, because of decisions adults encouraged her to make when she wasn't old enough to drink or vote or smoke a cigarette or buy a lottery ticket. That's the story of Kira Bell, real story but Kira Bell's just one. She's not the only one, not by a long shot. Stories like hers are becoming more and more common. Courts are being flooded with these court cases of young adults who are growing up to say, I was wronged by these adults steering me in this direction when I didn't know the impact of what this would do to my life. Think about what these adults did to Kira Bell by telling her she could be the god of her gender expression. Think about all that was irreversibly pumped into her teenage body. Think about all that was permanently done to her under a knife. Is that ethical treatment of a human being, an image bearer of God? It seems more like how we treat lab rats. Second domain in which this is a battleground today, the unborn. If the basis for human dignity is not rational capacity or intelligence, as Peter Singer would say as part of his scheme, but rather is our status as image bearers of God, then I already had all the dignity that I have now back when I was bearing God's image at birth. For that matter, five days before I was born or five months before birth when my mom first watched me squirm on an ultrasound, wasn't I image bearer then? And you say, well, I don't know. You say, to say that the unborn should have all the rights of born image bearers, that's a leap. But as Scott Klusendorf points out, there are really only four possible moral distinctions we could try to make between a born and an unborn child, and none of them actually hold up. He uses the helpful acronym SLED. Here's what he points out. You could distinguish morally on the basis of size, right? The preborn child is small, and so it's not deserving of life. It's not entitled to life. But do we really think larger people are more human than smaller people? That most men, for example, should have more rights than most women because we're larger humans? Size doesn't actually hold up as a moral distinction. Uh, what about level of development, though? The preborn child's not fully developed. But then again, neither is the four-year-old or the 14-year-old, right? So does the older sibling have more right to live than the younger sibling because they're a little more developed? No. On close analysis, level of development doesn't hold up as a moral distinction for the right to life either. Uh, what about environment? The preborn child's still in the womb. Maybe that's the difference. When it's born, it's a different deal. But in, in what other situation do we assign someone worth or value based on their location? Right? I like how Klusendorf says it. If my value doesn't change when I cross the street, how could it change when I make an eight-inch journey down the birth canal? Finally, degree of dependency. The preborn child is still dependent on the mother for life. This is the viability argument, right? But then you think about the four-month-old infant. Is the four-month-old infant not dependent on others for its survival? Could it make it on its own in any real sense? 
some folks here, adults, would die without insulin, right? So since they can't survive without external help, is it permissible to kill them? No, when you really press down into any possible distinction, size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency, it becomes clear that what's in a woman's womb is the same creature with the same value and dignity and rights as the toddler outside the womb. It's just smaller at an earlier level of development in a different environment and in a higher degree of dependency. And so we recognize that the conversation about the legitimacy of abortion is extremely difficult and it's agonizing for most women who experience it firsthand. We still do need to insist somewhere along the way in tenderness and compassion and in love that it does ultimately come down to whether it's okay to take the life of a unique human on whom God has personally placed his image. Yet, now, and now, and now, and now, and now, and now, and now, that's the rate of abortion worldwide. Someone looked at the bleak future ahead of them because of their pregnancy and effectively, tragically, made a jump on this ladder, perhaps pressured by others, often pressured by others. They probably didn't know that they were doing that. Some here have made that jump and experienced God's grace as a result of it. And God's grace is there, but when that leap is taken, the world is feeding us this demonic lie that instead of seeing myself as here on the same rung as the image bearer inside of me, I'm going to take a step up here, which will allow me to make this judgment about the worth of this being, assigning it a value down here. And a human life precious in the sight of God is extinguished as a result. Finally, immigrants. After that piece about abortion, you may say, well, no surprise the evangelical preacher hammered us on that. Evangelicals are obsessed with abortion. It's the only issue they seem to care about, right? It's all they vote on. You may be as surprised to learn this as I was. Did you know that evangelicals, at least white evangelicals, seem to be more united against immigration than against abortion? Public Research Religion Institute took this survey in 2018. You can look it up very easily. While only 66% of white evangelicals said that enacting anti-abortion laws should be a high or highest priority for the government, 66%. 83% of the same population said that immigration reform should be a high or highest priority. And those findings are consistent with other studies. You did one that uh, have shown white evangelicals to score up to 25 points higher than the average American in opposition to expanding legal immigration and refugee resettlement. Legal immigration. Now, praise God, I truly do not think those statistics would be the same uh, if our church were pulled. I don't. So don't receive this as an accusation. But for me, those numbers are and should be a cause for reflection, I think. Like, we could talk about this from an economic perspective, that every business in town seems to have signs on the door about the effect of labor shortages that could be helped, theoretically, by immigration. We could talk about this from a personal perspective, that many of the folks here in church sitting to your left and right, whom we serve with and take communion with, they are immigrants. 
We can talk about it from a historical perspective, that all of us come from immigrants somewhere down the line. We could talk about it from a missions perspective, that every week we're praying for people in hard-to-reach places that the gospel will somehow find a way to them. And some of them are applying for refugee status to be brought right here to Chicago. And white evangelicals are saying, more than anybody else is saying, no, 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 don't bring them here. But for today's, today's purposes, I want to think about this dynamic through the lens of the image of God. That's what we're looking at today. What do I believe about people born elsewhere? If my knee jerk is always keep them out. What's going on in my heart if I priority rank closing the borders above protecting the lives of the unborn? Please don't get me wrong. There are many legitimate positions for a Christian to hold on immigration. This isn't a support of open borders. This is not a claim that everyone needs to think a wide open immigration policy is best for America, not at all. This is an opportunity to look in the mirror and examine whether I am subconsciously viewing fellow image bearers, those born outside of America, like they're subhuman. If maybe I've without realizing it, hoisted myself up a rung to sit on God's seat and to deem certain people more or less worthy of dignity and respect based on their nation of origin. See, sometimes it's the same root underneath all manner of issues. And some of these image of God priorities may get you pats on the back in your political circle. Others won't. But we don't set our priorities, church, do we? Based on consulting our preferred party platform. We treat all people like image bearers because the Bible says that all people are image bearers. So our big idea, once again, is this. Let's remind ourselves regularly that we are not our own, but belong to another. We are not our own, but belong to another. Our, after all, our, our God, he didn't just create us in his image. He actually sent the supreme image bearer to seal our worth for all time by dying in our place to restore the image of God in us. The name of that ultimate image bearer is Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of the Father, spoken of in the New Testament as the image of the invisible God, the one who imaged God like no one else ever did, the one who showed us an exact representation of God's being. And if you can believe it, that image bearer and the God who sent him considered us, you and me, so valuable so worthy despite our failures in imaging God properly that the Son willingly died for us, giving up his life to purchase ours. And if it's true that the worth of an item is best defined by the lengths that someone is willing to go to possess that item, what does it mean for our worth that the Son of God was willing to suffer death to have us? He wanted us, all of us, including the one struggling with gender dysphoria, including the one not yet born, including the one born somewhere else, and including those of us who have sinned by degrading the image of God in ourselves and in others, by elevating ourselves to the place of God and demeaning others as though they were animals. We've all done that along the way. We're all guilty of that. Yet, Jesus died to cleanse us from that sin and to conform us to the image that we were originally created to reflect. And that goes for all of us. 
is to remind ourselves of our place. Our place of great dignity and worth, yet of creaturely submission. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we praise you that when the enemy speaks his lies to us, that we have an answer. That when he tries to tear us down and tell us that we're nothing, that our failures, our sins have degraded us so far that there's no hope for us. We have an answer, that we are precious in your sight because of our status as your image bearers and as proved by the willingness of your son to die for us, to shed his own blood for us on the cross. And when the enemy comes with the other lie, puffing us up, telling us that we deserve to be calling the shots, that we deserve your spot on your throne. Thank you that we have an answer to that too, that our flourishing is found in the freedom of running in the lane you've called us to run in, of living life in conformity 